everybody. You are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, my name is Emily, and I am here with my co-host, Jasmine. We are recording this on Friday, July 29th, and it's going to begin airing on Sunday, July 31st, 2022. Boy, oh boy. How are you doing, Jasmine? I'm all right. I was better before I heard, you know, Sunday's the end of July. Yeah. So it feels like it was just New Year's, but yeah, yeah, that's yeah, aging yeah. for you. Yep, yep, yep. Flying by, flying by. Um, for me, especially this time of year, we've talked about this. I do a lot of hiding out indoors. You know, everything is so hot, and it this it feels like it's just gonna get the hotter times are gonna get longer. You know. Um, yeah, but let's not talk about that. No. <laughs> We'll save it for another day, another story, another day. Um, but yeah, so we are about to dive in. We have some great stories for you guys. We have a, a local story about a New York real estate guy who built an empire by stealing it potentially for, or, uh, allegedly, or I don't know. It's in the it's in the court systems um, by taking property from others in nefarious ways. We have a world story on monkeypox. And then we're going to have Reese coming in later with a surprise good and national news situation. So I'm excited. Um, you ready to dive in, Jasmine? No. Yeah, go okay. ahead. <laughs> cool. Uh, great. So I'm going to dive in. I have the local news uh, this week. So this story comes from a July 24th New York Times story by Stephanos Chen, Ted Clifford, and Camelia Burris titled, He Runs a New York Real Estate Empire. Did He Steal It? Homeowners across the city say they were swindled out of their properties, but courts have been slow to act. The article explains, quote, Over the past dozen years, Sanford Solney has built a New York real estate empire, snatching up small residential buildings across the city that churn out hundreds of thousands of dollars in rent. His portfolio would be enviable, but for one thing. Much of it, prosecutors and homeowners contend, was stolen. In criminal charges and lawsuits, they have accused him of fraud, offering to help home- homeowners facing foreclosure by arranging to pay off their mortgages while actually tricking them into signing over their buildings at bargain basement prices. In nearly every case, the mortgage was never paid, uh, leaving the homeowner with no property but a pile of debt. The practice is known as deed theft, and as city and state officials promised to crack down on it, they homed in on Mr. Solney. The uh, Brooklyn District Attorney, whose office was charged him with taking the homes of seven families, called his behavior despicable. In Queens, prosecutors accused Mr. Solney and his associates of cheating 10 people out of their properties. The court appointed a monitor to scrutinize his transactions. But an examination by the New York Times has found that not only is Mr. Solney still profiting from buildings under dispute, city agencies are contributing to his earnings by subsidizing the rent at some of his properties. His case exemplifies the slow and stumbling fight against deed theft, which often targets immigrants and Black and Latino homeowners. Despite repeated pledges from the New York State Attorney General and legislature to curtail the fraud, only a small fraction of thousands of complaints are ever prosecuted. Homeowners stripped of their most significant asset are left to engage in a long and expensive fight to try to reclaim their properties in civil court. A close review of Mr. Solney's holdings and transactions, drawing on housing court cases, lawsuits, city property records, and interviews, reveals a long record of questionable dealings and a largely ineffective government response. 
Over more than a decade, Mr. Solney and companies linked to him took ownership of at least 140 properties, the Times found. The former owners of 40 of those buildings, which include a coveted brownstone in gentrifying Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, a three-story apartment building near Rockaway Beach, and a suburban craftsman-style home with a lawn in Rosedale, Queens, have claimed they were victims of deed theft, civil and criminal court records show. Even while Mr. Solney was under the eye of the monitor, a company controlled by him paid a Brooklyn woman $5,000 for a home worth about 100 times that much and left her family with the debt, according to the woman and city property records. Through a web of shell companies, Mr. Solney still owns 19 homes whose owners he has been accused of defrauding, and he collects rent from tenants he installed in many of them, according to court filings, city records, and interviews. As criminal charges against Mr. Solney have piled up, city agencies have paid the rent of tenants at some of those properties through affordable housing vouchers, the Times found. How does the system work for him and not for us, said Janet Bruce, a retired home health aide from Guyana, who said in court filings that Mr. Solney walked into her home in Flatbush, Brooklyn in 2014 with a stack of paper and a promise to rescue her and her husband from foreclosure. He gave the couple $14,000 but never paid off their mortgage, she said. He walked out as the owner of a building now worth about $900,000, said Ms. Bruce, 69, who has sued Mr. Solney. The transaction is also part of the criminal case in Brooklyn. From July 2014 through February of this year, there were more than 30,350 complaints of deed theft in New York City, almost half of which were in Brooklyn, according to the City City Department of Finance. The Brooklyn District Attorney's Office brought charges in 27 cases of deed theft since 2014, according to a Times review. It just makes you wonder how seriously we as a society and our criminal justice system take white-collar crime that actually victimizes people, said Oda Friedheim, a supervising lawyer at the Legal Aid Society who deals with property fraud. A lawyer for Mr. Solney declined to answer specific questions from the Times, citing the open criminal case in Brooklyn. The fact that these clients would lose their homes had been a foregone conclusion long before they ever met Mr. Solney, the lawyer, Michael Farkas said in a statement. When they sought his assistance with managing that unfortunate and complex reality, these clients executed documents that clearly conveyed their properties to Mr. Solney. Deed fraud complaints in New York City have fallen from a peak of 665 in 2015 to 154 last year. But those numbers mask what could be a looming surge now that protections against foreclosure that were put in place during the pandemic have expired. You have a very high number of homeowners that are in distress, and real estate in New York has never been more valuable, said Ivy Perez, uh, the senior policy and research manager for the Center for NYC Neighborhoods, an affordable housing nonprofit. That is a potent combination for scammers. Uh, quote, deed theft takes different forms, so Mr. Solney is accused of one of the most common. The fraud uh, preys on people who are in danger of losing their homes, information that is easily obtainable in real estate databases. Some buyers also recruit local residents to find people they know who are in financial trouble. Homeowners are told they qualify for a short sale, a deal in which the lender settles for less than the amount owed on the mortgage. The owners, already resigned to losing their properties to foreclosure and confused by a mountain of paperwork, believe the deal will at least relieve them of their debt and give them a small amount of cash. In reality, the documents they sign transfer ownership of the building while still leaving the homeowners responsible for the debt. 
The person committing the fraud brings in tenants and collects rent, sometimes for years, until banks or other lenders finally foreclose on the property. Quote, prosecutors say they are hamstrung by the law. They must show there was criminal intent in cases that are not as slam dunk as those they prefer to bring to court. Years can go by before a homeowner realizes what happened and the transactions are complicated. What one person claims as fraud can be defended as just a lopsided business deal. Deed theft is notoriously difficult to investigate and prosecute, said Melinda Katz, the Queens District Attorney. The sentiment was echoed by Eric Gonzalez, the Brooklyn District Attorney. Civil lawsuits are usually the only way a homeowner can try to reclaim a title, and victims often cannot afford a lawyer. The plaintiffs rarely win. Properties once owned by several of Mr. Cohen's clients were sold at foreclosure auctions to other parties before the cases could be settled. Uh, Quote, homeowners are not the only ones affected. Tenants and city agencies uh, have complained of serious safety and health hazards at buildings owned by companies linked to Mr. Solney. One of the 19 disputed properties those companies still owned as of June uh, 15, oh, that owned as of June, 15 had open housing violations, including for heat and hot water failures, unsafe wiring, and pest infestations. Uh, Quote, Public efforts have been made to counter property fraud, but critics say the measures fall short. The state attorney general's office announced a campaign to fight deed theft in 2020, funding free legal services and mortgage assistance in neighborhoods vulnerable to fraud. But relief for those who have already lost their homes can be difficult to get. The office is currently prosecuting just three deed theft cases. A state law passed in 2019 included a rule that allows prosecutors to file a motion to void a fraudulent property transfer in connection with a guilty plea or verdict. But the rule is narrowly defined, limiting its use, and the process can still take years, said Rachel Gibali, or Gibal, a deputy director at Brooklyn Legal Services. Neither Queens nor Brooklyn prosecutors have used the mechanism, although the offices said they had used other means to void fraudulent deeds. So that is the story. It is, it's kind of complicated, but it's also really important. You know, I think things related to money um, are made complicated on purpose so that people um, who become, become victims and get confused by people who know how to manipulate those things. And I think, you know, especially something like this, which I have never really heard of before, I don't think, you know, like that's how people get trapped is, it's just not being aware that this is a possibility. So I thought it was an important story, story to share. Yeah, like it's it's just it's so upsetting and it's it's um it's angering to hear. Like um I'm with my grandmother at the moment who is from the deep south, but most of my relatives grew up in Brooklyn. So I'm familiar with you know, you kind of hear stories, especially within black families of, you know, like people working really hard to get property and then you know years down the line like something might happen in the family or you fall on hard times and then like you're saying like there's people who you know seeking to make a profit can take advantage of that and uh, she was my grandmother was just talking to me yesterday about um, air property and how that's such a widespread problem with you know, people, you know, typically black people, lower income or working class, you know, buying something. And then, you know, when the person who owned it dies, like they split it up amongst different heirs 
and people that are in the know about like different loopholes and laws and stuff like that, like they're able to completely usurp what the person who, you know, may have left the building to their children, like they're able to get around that and be like, well, no, like I'm going to take it over. And then that property is just gone, like from your family forever, typically. Um, it's really, it's a shame. And I know the woman in the story called it white collar crime. But like, we talked a lot about like homelessness on the show and how as the years go by, there's more and more elderly people who are homeless. And to me, there's nothing like white collar about the situations that put people mm -hmm. in that position. You know, mm -hmm. like it's, it's violent, like being foreclosed on, being evicted. Mm -hmm. not having a home that's life and mm -hmm. death for most people you know it's a really sad upsetting situation yeah I agree um I think yeah home ownership and you know the way it is tied in with um homelessness in this you know in this country and it's it's the harder and harder to afford buying a home like there's all sorts of chaotic things happening especially in the New York area or related to just affording rent, affording, let alone buying. Um, and there's lots of people out there that want to take advantage of that, that want to make as much money as possible and don't really care if who does and does not have a place to live. Um, and it's a societal issue too, you know, like just we've created a situation where um, we've, you know, it's a commodity, you know, it's not a right it's not, which we, we talked about on the show, you know, housing is right as a human. It's a necessity. Um, it's just like clean water uh, and food. Yeah. And it's really, it's sad to hear that there's, there's people out there who are so adept at taking advantage of it. You know, this guy's been doing this for years. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I saw a friend of mine recently and there was a TV plan in the background. They kept playing on loop like these police officers in the subway that were beating up this a young black kid, I believe, for like fair evasion. And it's just I shake my mm -hmm. head because like, I don't think anyone deserves that. But it's like, you know, for 275, like that could be the end of your life where you have mm -hmm. a criminal record forever and your life is fucked up. Mm -hmm. Like once you get evicted, it's very hard to find housing. Yeah. Once that, once you're in that cycle, it's a wrap yeah. for a lot of people. Yes. But you can and cause that type of commotion for decades, and it's like a slap on the wrist or no consequence. Yeah, no, it's you're a hundred percent right. I don't know if the rules have changed since I was last in New York, but I know that um, they may have changed slightly. But it it was it's very hard to qualify for an apartment uh, in New York City, like when I back when oh I was it's working, terrible it's a nightmare I'm never you, moving you have to make 40 times the rent is like was the last thing which is it's like borderline impossible <laughs> like, now they're advertising bidding for apartments that's been oh happening with people I know like a friend of mine everyone in the building had to leave because they were trying to raise the rent a thousand dollars they wouldn't renew her lease so mm. they just kicked everyone out so that they could just make the new terms that much more expensive in mm. like Queens. It's just, it's out of control. And I think like Manhattan, it's like 5,000 is now the yeah. average or, or the median or something. Yeah. Is, Jesus. For like, Christ. for like, how, like a one bedroom, maybe 
it's something like that. Something I not just, not a four bedroom. I'm telling you, I that wouldn't much. pay that for a house. Yeah, <laughs> thousand a year, but a month, a month, <laughs> a year. Yeah, yeah, I'd pay that. <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, I'm glad at least they're reporting on it. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And um, before we close out the local news for the day, I do want to say that with article mentioned a resource. You know, there is the um, the Protect Our Homes and Homeowner Protection Program. And you can find that on ag.ny.gov slash protect hyphen our hyphen homes. Um, agny.gov protect our homes. Uh, and it's the protection program. And there's information on there. You know, again, these these bureaucratic things, you know, it's not simple. But if you are in need of resources related to this or you, you know someone um, who it, I think they offer some qualified mortgage assistant relief services sometimes, you know, uh, homeowner relief efforts. If you're looking for that, that might be a resource for you. And alrighty, I think it's time for us to take a musical break. Um, I picked out the local news, local store, uh, local news, local song, this week, I um, have been spending, I mean, this is normal for me, but I like to ignore the chaos of the world by watching movies from a time period that were also chaotic, but I was too young um, to know it, whatever, just seems, seems so, all the problems seem so retro and cute these days, even in those movies. And um, I was watching Gross Point Blank, which also had, was like as a movie about nostalgia too, had a lot of songs <laughs> nice. from the 80s, loved it. Loved it so much. Um, what is it? Ten years, man. Yeah. <laughs> Ten years. It's so good. It's so so good. Um, so yeah. So this song is "The Killing Moon" by Echo and the Bunny Men, and we'll be right back.
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Hello, everybody, and happy Sunday or Monday. This is Teresa reporting a national news story, story from Reuters. The title of the story is Hyundai Subsidiary Has Used Child Labor at Alabama Factory. The authors of this article are Joshua Shiner, Michael Rosenberg, and Christina Cook. A subsidiary of Hyundai Motor Company has used child labor at a plant that supplies parts for the Korean car makers assembly line in nearby Montgomery, Alabama. According to area police, the family of the three underage workers and eight former and current employees of the factory. Underage workers in some cases as young as 12 have recently worked at a metal stamping plant operated by Smart Alabama LLC. Smart, listed by Hyundai in corporate filings as a majority owned unit supplies parts for some of the most popular cars and SUVs built by the automaker in Montgomery, its flagship U.S. assembly plant. In a statement sent after Reuters first published its findings on Friday, Hyundai said it does not tolerate illegal employment practices at any Hyundai entity. We have policies and procedures in place that require compliance with all local, state, and federal laws. It didn't answer detailed questions from Reuters about the findings. Smart, in a separate statement, said it follows federal, state, and local laws and denies any allegations that it knowingly employed anyone who is ineligible for employment. The company said it relies on temporary work agencies to fill jobs and expects these agencies to follow the laws in recruiting, hiring, and placing workers on its premises. Smart didn't answer specific questions about the workers cited in this story or the job scenes they and other people familiar with the factory described. Reuters learned of underage workers at the Hyundai-owned supplier following the brief disappearance in February of a Guatemalan migrant child from her family's home in Alabama. The girl, who turns 14 this month, and her two brothers, aged 12 and 15, all worked at the plant earlier this year and weren't going to school, according to people familiar with their employment. Their father, Pedro Tizzi, confirmed these people's account in an interview with Reuters. Police in the Tizi family's adopted hometown of Enterprise also told Reuters that the girl and her siblings had worked at SMART. The police, who helped locate the missing girl at the time of their search, identified her by name in the public alert. Reuters is not using her name in this article because she is a minor. The police force in Enterprise, about 45 miles from the plant in Luverne, doesn't have jurisdiction to investigate possible labor law violations at the factory. Instead, the force notified the state attorney general's office after the incident. James Saunders, an enterprise police detective, told Reuters. Mike Lewis, a spokesperson at the Alabama attorney general's office, declined to comment. It's unclear whether the office or other investigators have contacted Smart or Hyundai about possible violations on Friday. In response to Reuters reporting, A spokesperson for the Alabama Department of Labor said it would be coordinating with the U.S. Department of Labor and other agencies to investigate. Pedro Tazi's children, who have now enrolled for the upcoming school term, were among a larger cohort of underage workers 
who found jobs at the Hyundai-owned supplier over the past few years, according to interviews with a dozen former and current plant employees and labor recruiters. Several of these miners, they said, have foregone schooling in order to work long shifts at the plant, a sprawling facility with a documented history of health and safety violations, including amputation hazards. Most of the current and former employees who spoke with Reuters did so on the condition of anonymity. Reuters was unable to determine the precise number of children who may have worked at, smart, at the smart factory, what the miners were paid, or what the terms of their employment were. The revelation of child labor and Hyundai's U.S. supply chain could spark consumer, regulatory, and reputational backlash for one of the most powerful and profitable automakers in the world. In a human rights policy posted online, Hyundai says it forbids child labor throughout its workforce, including suppliers. The company recently said it will expand in the United States, planting over $5 billion in investments, including a new electric vehicle factory near Savannah, Georgia. Consumers should be outraged, said David Michaels, the former U.S. Assistant Secretary of Labor for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, with whom Reuters shared the findings of its reporting. They should know that these cars are being built, at least in part, by workers who are children and need to be in school rather than risking life and limb because their families are desperate for income. At the time of U.S. labor shortages and supply chain disruptions, labor experts told Reuters that there are heightened risk that there are heightened risks that children, especially undocumented migrants, could end up in workplaces that are hazardous and illegal for minors. An enterprise home to a bustling poultry industry, Reuters earlier this year chronicled how a Guatemalan miner who migrated to the United States alone found work at a local chicken processing plant. Alabama and federal law limits minors under the age of 18 from working in metal stamping and pressing operations such as SMART, where proximity to dangerous machinery can put them at risk. Alabama law also requires children 17 and under to be enrolled in school. Michaels, who is now a professor at George Washington University, said safety at U.S.-based Hyundai suppliers was a recurrent concern in OSHA during his eight years leaving the agency until he left in 2017. Michaels visited Korea in 2015 and said he warned Hyundai executives that its heavy demand for just-in-time parts was causing safety laps. The smart plant builds parts for the popular Elantra, Sonata, and Santa Fe models, vehicles that through June accounted for almost 37% of Hyundai's U.S. sales, according to the carmaker. The factory has received repeated OSHA penalties for health and safety violation, federal records show. So this is awful that they are hiring children to create parts in these factories. Obviously, there's no safety precautions being taken for them. And children as young as 12 are not going to school to work in these factories to help their families. I mean, there's two parts that's wrong with this story, right? Children should be forced into labor by anyone or have to do that in order to help uh, su supply for their family. But these companies should definitely be following the labor laws and not allowing this to happen to people. Whether they're undocumented or underrepresented or wherever they come from, it's not ever safe for women, for children to be in situations where there's no legit like safety practices being followed or protocols. And what happens if one of these children are hurt or, you know, more importantly, have some sort of issue and becomes amputated because of this? Where are the protections for them? and who is following up with these companies that are doing this. I'm sure they're not the only company that's doing something like this, but obviously this is an issue that needs to be uh, more looked into. That's pretty wild. I, it, it, it would be funny if it wasn't so terrible that the company is like, 
It this is the the temp agency's fault. It's like so no one noticed that there were twelve year olds like working at your facility. Like they don't look like adults. There's just no way. Um so yeah, it's like, okay, the manager here and like they don't talk like there's just no way that you don't know that you have twelve year olds working at your facility. So that's ridiculous. Um and and yeah, I mean it's 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 terrible. I'm not sure if I'm surprised that that's happening. I think with all of the um like there's just so much need for economic assistance in this country and in general and there's so, there's so much income inequality and issues like that. It breeds situations where this will happen and it's terrible and these children need to be in school and not at risk of amputation apparently because it's like a very dangerous facility and things like that you know and sounds like it should require specialized training and it's it's upsetting to hear that this is happening we have a society in this country and more broadly in the west that is built on exploitation and it exists it's only able to exist because of exploitation and a lot of it is like the afterlife of slavery in this country You know, like we don't technically have the same kind of chattel slavery that we had before the Civil War. And even that continued with, you know, the sharecropping system like after slavery. But if you look at the extent to which, you know, prisoners are forced to work for free, you know, and like you see all of these laws changing to force people into the status of being a felon to keep them in some kind of secondary status. You see, you know, the way that um, people are being forced through conditions in their home country to migrate unsafely and then be forced into these unsafe conditions once they do get into this country and the powers that be allow it to happen because all they care about ultimately is cheap labor or free labor, labor that's easy to beat up and exploit and take advantage of. You know, it's really disgusting and it's all in service to what, you know, like we're talking about a car factory and at the top of the hour, you know, we were talking a little bit about weather and how things are just getting hotter. Like we see what's going on with the climate, but, you know, it's like you're seeing all of this exploitation and labor and pain and suffering going into making more machines that are making the planet uninhabitable. You know, so I, it's not even just about these individual children and their situation. It's like we have a whole system that is not sustainable and it's only sustained by things like this happening, whether it's a car factory, the people that make your food, pick your food, you know, to some degree, like even, you know, in the hospitality industry or people that do caretaking jobs, you know, you see a lot of that same story, you know, people being trafficked, being abused, not having their rights respected. So if anything, like in the news cycles, the only positive thing that I really see that I hang on to is seeing, you know, the different movements towards more unionization. And I hope that that continues you know, not just with coffee shops and things like that, but also in these types of jobs, you know, because there's no way that, you know, the people heading these companies, they really don't give a damn about anything other than the bottom line. And we're going to take another musical break before we get into the world news. Uh, Again, you're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. (laughs) 
and this song is What It Is by Rafi Bushman. We'll be right back. You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. All right, we are back. You are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up now we have our world news story from Jasmine. Take it away, Jasmine. Okay, so sadly, as I'm sure many of you know, like there is now a pox epidemic happening. Um, So most of this information comes from NPR and also the World Health Organization. Uh, The World Health Organization declares monkeypox a public health emergency. Uh, That was written by A.V. Schneider on July 23rd for NPR. The World Health Organization on Saturday declared the monkeypox outbreak a public health emergency. I have decided that the global monkeypox outbreak represents a public health emergency of international concern. WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said, issuing a public health emergency of international concern enhances coordination and sharing of resources and information among nations. The declaration comes even though the WHO Emergency Committee considering whether or not to issue the emergency declaration had failed to reach a consensus. Tedros said the outbreak is spreading rapidly and there is a clear risk of further international spread. The monkeypox outbreak is largely among men who have sex with men and have multiple sexual partners. 
There are more than 16,000 cases globally, and according to the Centers for Disease Control, 2,891 cases have been confirmed in the United States. Uh, that information is now a week old. The numbers have unfortunately like exploded in the U.S., and we're, we're close to number one outside of places where monkeypox is endemic. Uh, back to the article. These are There are vaccines available for monkeypox, but those supplies are strained. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, 191,000 doses have thus far been delivered to states and city health departments. HHS says the federal government will have close to 7 million doses by mid-2023. Uh, this is a different NPR um, excerpt from a different NPR article. Um, and in it, the article says Dr. Anne Rimoine is a UCLA epidemiology professor and has spent the last two decades in the Democratic Republic of Congo working on monkeypox. She said it was only when the virus spread beyond rural Africa that it sparked a global response. This virus has been spreading in marginalized and vulnerable populations in Africa for decades, and we've done nothing about it, Rimoine said. We have known that monkeypox is a potential problem for decades. Ramon questioned why there wasn't a more concerted effort to address or prepare for the virus years earlier when monkeypox was spreading in rural Africa. She said she had co-authored a paper in 2010 that documented a large increase in monkeypox cases since the eradication of smallpox and the end of the smallpox vaccine, which also protects people from monkeypox. If we do want to get in front of emerging infectious diseases, we are going to have to prioritize dealing with emerging global disease threats at the site where they are spreading early on, Ramon said. We are totally interconnected by trade and travel, population growth, population movement, and we cannot make the mistake again of thinking that an infection that's happening somewhere in a remote area of the world isn't going to affect us right at home. She also said it's much easier to stay out of trouble than it is to get it. Wait, it is much easier to stay out of trouble than it is to get out of trouble, she said. Uh, and this is back to the World Health Organization, just information about the disease itself. Uh, Monkeypox was first identified in humans in 1970 in the Dem Democratic Republic of the Congo in a nine-month-old boy in a region where smallpox had been eliminated in 1968. Since 1970, human cases have been reported in 11 African countries, Benin, Cameroon, the Central African Republic, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Gabon, Côte d'Ivoire, Liberia, Nigeria, the Republic of the Congo, Sierra Leone, and South Sudan. Human-to-human -human transmission can result from close contact with respiratory secretions, skin lesions of an infected person, or recently contaminated objects. Transmission via droplet respiratory particles usually requires prolonged face-to-face -face contact which puts health workers, household members, and other close contacts of active cases at greater risk. The, the current like outbreaks may de reflect declining immunity in all communities due to cessation of smallpox vaccination. Transmission can also occur via the placenta from mother to fetus, 
which can lead to congenital monkeypox, or during close contact during and after birth. While close contact is a well-known risk factor for transmission, it is unclear at this time if monkeypox can be transmitted specifically through sexual transmission routes. Studies are needed to better understand this risk. Um, and this is information about the incubation period and how the disease itself looks, so you can keep an eye out. The incubation period interval from infection to onset of symptoms of monkeypox is usually from 6 to 13 days, but can range from 5 to 21 days. The invasion period usually lasts between 0 and 5 days and is characterized by fever, intense headache, swelling of the lymph nodes, back pain, muscle aches, and intense lack of energy. The skin eruption usually begins within one to three days of the appearance of fever. The rash tends to be concentrated on the face and extremities rather than on the trunk. It affects the face in 95% of cases and palms of the hands and soles of the feet in 75% of cases. Also affected are oral mucous membranes in 70% of cases genitalia in 30% of cases, and, con and conjunctivae in 20%, as well as the cornea. So that's your eye. The rash evolves sequentially from lesions with a flat base, or macules, to papules, slightly raised, firm lesions, vesicules, lesions filled with clear fluid, postules, lesions filled with yellowish fluid, and crusts, which Drop, which, which dry up and fall off. The number of lesions varies from a few several thousand, from a few to several thousand. In severe cases, lesions can coalesce until large sections of skin slough off. Um, so this is also from the from the WHO. It's usually a self-limiting disease that lasts two to four weeks. Immunodeficiencies may lead to worse outcomes. Some complications can include secondary infections, bronchopneumonia, sepsis, encephalitis, and infection of the cornea with ensuing loss of vision. Historically, the fatality rate was from 0 to 11% in the general population and is higher among young kids. In recent times, the case fatality rate has been around 3 to 6%. Surveillance and rapid identification of new cases, it's critical for outbreak containment. During human monkeypox outbreak, close contact with infected persons is the most significant risk factor for monkeypox infection. Health workers and household members are at a greater risk. So again, this is back to NPR. If you're experiencing telltale symptoms, these are tips from the WHO. Avoid scratching your skin. Keep the skin dry and uncovered. Clean the skin with sterilized water or antiseptics. Take a warm bath with baking soda or Epsom salts for lesions on the body. For lesions in the mouth, use a salt water rinse like you would for canker sores. If you, lived in a, if you live in a shared household, isolate in your room if possible and use a designated bathroom. 
use separate eating utensils, towels, and electronics, and do your own laundry. Open your windows whenever possible for good ventilation, but avoid sweeping and vacuuming, which could disturb virus particles found on the floors and lead to further infections. Uh, the CDC also recommends if you have been exposed to monkeypox and haven't had a smallpox, smallpox vaccine in the last three years, get one sooner rather than later. The CDC also recommends getting inoculated within four days of exposure and no later than two weeks to reduce symptoms. Um, so I'm going to end there. I just wanted to give you know as much of a rundown as I could uh, about this not new uh, to the world, but you know, as far as it being this big of an outbreak, it's sort of a virus many of us are not that familiar with. All right, another one from my house of horrors. Diseases all the time. We got smallpox. We got polio. We got COVID still. Um, we got the so Marburg virus. We got a what? The Marburg virus. That's another one. I don't know what that is. Oh, that's always been around. In the Bronx. Um, yeah, it's tough. It's tough being human. I don't even know what that other one you just said was, Jasmine. <laughs> now I'm like, do I torture myself and look it up? I don't know. But um, yeah, no, I, um, yeah, I think it really is rooted in that thing where um, as this, like just ignoring a disease in a part of the world because we somehow think that it's not going to get around. And we live in a very global world these days. Like just saw you saw how fast COVID spread, right? Like it's going to, it's going to happen more and more unless we take precautions and take things seriously and, you know, pay attention to the signs and to every part of the world, not just, you know, when white Westerners start getting sick yeah Blech. yeah for sure like I think it is important to um I know one of the things that's been on my mind is you know I know it's a world story but the way that it's been talked about in the U.S. and probably also the U.K. I think it's given a lot of people the false impression that this is a new like mm -hmm. sexually transmitted disease in particular and, mm -hmm. you know, I thought it was important to point out that that is not the case. Like, this right. is a virus that's been around for decades since before you and I were born. And it just so happens that, like, the social network that it is spreading the most quickly through right now seems to be um, men who have sex with men. Or I know mm -hmm. some consider that, like, an outdated term, but, like, that's a still the common medical way to refer um, to mm -hmm. men. Um, but it is not an STI. Like they're still doing research on whether or not it can be spread, like specifically through semen or vaginal secretions, but close contact is the key, you know? So mm -hmm. I hope contact tracing is being ramped up for this. Cause I think that's probably the most important tool that you have, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Scary stuff. <laughs> oh. Yeah. And I think it's like you were saying, um, parts of the world where people think it's so remote or whatever, but I also mm -hmm. think it has to do, like you mentioned, when white Westerners get sick. Like when it first 
happened, like I remember seeing articles that were showing um, photos from where it was endemic when the outbreaks were happening in Europe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people were, you know, kind of like connecting it to like black people or Africans, like when that wasn't where it was happening, you know, that's not where the new concerning outbreaks were going down. So, you know, it's, it's not just about being remote, but also, you know, people's lives are valuable wherever they are. And like, we have had these tools to fight it, to vaccinate against it. Mm-hmm. effective tools and they just have not been equitably distributed and even in the u.s like there were vaccines available that were held back and not distributed until like way after the cases were out of control and i mm-hmm. wouldn't be surprised if it was because of like homophobia or thinking you know mm-hmm. as if people who are depending on your orientation like you're not on some desert island somewhere like you're a part of a community <laughs> Like you have household members, doctors, you might see chiropractors you visit, you know, like we have to, a threat to anybody is a threat to all of us, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, as long as it's othered and treated like, oh, it's just these African people. Oh, it's just, you know, those gay people or whatever this, we keep seeing this happen over and over again. Like, it's then going to be everyone's problem. So we should treat it like it's all of our problem at the beginning, because that's what public health is about. It's about the public. It's about all of us. I don't know if I have much more to say. This is like (laughs) my house of horrors. Um, Are you sitting there with like your clockwork orange? Like, (laughs) I don't want to do it anymore. I think uh, Reese is going to come in with some good news. So our good news story comes from a um, from the Optimist Daily, and the title of this story is Panama enacts landmark legislation giving nature rights. Panama is among the 25th most mega diverse countries in the world. It is home to big cats like jaguars and ocelots, six distinct monkey species like uh, capuchins, myriad marine and bird life, and many kind of sloth like the pygmy sloth. Who is endangered. Its mystifying array of creatures shoulders Panama with a lot of responsibility for maintaining our planet's biodiversity. That's exactly how the First Lady of Panama, Congresswoman Juan Diego Vasquez Gutierrez, and biologist Khalil Villanturf saw it. Since 2020, Villanturf, the Earth Law Center, Vasquez, and his advisors have developed and proposed that the rights of nature to exist, persist, and regenerate be legally recognized. In late February 2022, all their work was rewarded when Panama's president, Laurentino Catizo, signed the rights of nature into the country's laws. The rights of nature are as follows. Acknowledges nature's rights to exist, persist, and regenerate life cycles, requires the state and all individual citizens and non-citizens alike to respect nature, guarantees nature's representation to have its interests fought for in a court of law, creates a framework that improves the legal and judicial means, resources and arguments available to environmental lawyers and activists, changes the official Panamanian relationship with nature from one of superiority and otherness to one of interconnection and interdependence, removes anthrocentric assumptions creating legal principles such as in dubio pro natura, meaning when in doubt, side with nature. 
establishes that the worldview and ancestral knowledge of indigenous peoples must be an integral part of interpreting and applying the rights of nature and furthers Panama's defense against the climate crisis. Any decisions or actions by the state, individuals, or companies will now have to contend with the Panamanian legal system before taking any actions that affect nature. This new legal framework will necessitate changes to Panama's land management and energy policies, as nature is now a party that requires representation in many matters. The next step will be legal action and changes made to ensure that current companies or state entities are in line with the law. Panama joins a handful of other countries who have enacted similar legislation, such as Bolivia, Ecuador, Uganda, and Chile. Other countries are working to join the movement as well. The public will also be educated on their new power and duty to defend nature. This will make it easier for people to bring cases against corporations and countries to defend rivers, forests, animals, wetlands, and oceans. So this is a great story. There's a little bit more here, but I definitely think this is so cool. And I hope that one day countries all over the world will enact these laws as well. What a beautiful, beautiful use of the legal system, I guess. Um, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in real life. But I think acknowledging that, I mean, it it goes down deeper, right? Because I think so much of human history has been like humans are other and separate from nature, but we're not. And it's put our it's put our whole existence in peril with climate change and the slowness to react to it. Um, like we are a part of nature, even in the middle of a city, you know. And I think that um, if we, I think this is a great way to reframe how we look with at nature and our relationship with that. It's a great framework for that. And yeah, it's beautiful. I'm excited to see what might come of it. And you have been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, We'll be back next week with more news of local, national, world news, maybe some good news. And uh, have a great week, everybody. Yes, everybody, have a good week. And the last song for today's episode is Candela from the Buena Vista Social Club. Bye-bye.
If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.